So we live in a world that is fascinating, uh, obsessed with transformation. This fall, I was on a college campus, not Wake Forest, another college campus visiting a friend who's a campus minister, and was sitting at a table next to uh, a table with a group of college students, and they were reading a website, a, uh, a gym website, and the scripture that was listed there. Um, and I overheard the reading, I had to look it up because it was so good. Okay, so there's a website, it's a gym called Barry's. This is what the website said. This is the room where everything becomes possible, where you push through the eye pants and hit home where you run faster, lift more, lean out, quiet down. This is what transformation looks like when you become the best version of yourself. The workout itself is designed for efficiency. The intervals and strength training combinations are proven to lean and tone your body. This isn't a fitness trend, it's just science, and it works. <laughs> then there's the thing that happens when the doors close, lights dim, and music turns up. There's a palpable energy in the room that pushes you one step further. It's the soul, body, brain revolution that's uniquely buried. I don't know why they do buried. <laughs> I don't know, let down the end. Um, but we're obsessed with transformation, we are obsessed with transformation. And the, the premise of Barry's is that you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see. Uh, there's a, there's a, a medical term called Snapchat dysphoria, uh, I'm sorry, dysmorphia. And this is a condition where um, you prefer the way you look at your Snapchat filter more than how you actually look. And people are actually getting plastic surgery because of this, because, um, because of this dysmorphia. Not looking in the mirror and not liking what they see. And if we're honest with ourselves, mirrors are really helpful, but they're often uncomfortable. But mirrors are necessary for transformation. We must see ourselves as we actually are if we want to change. If we want to change. So the, the tools that you need for true transformation, you need a mirror, you need to see yourself as you actually are, and you need a window. You need a vision of something outside of you. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be reading Jonah together. Maybe this is a book you've read. Maybe you've heard a little bit about it. Uh, it seems like it's got a little bit of God, maybe a little bit of fairy tale, maybe a little bit of truth. Maybe it has a good moral message. Uh, maybe you remember hearing it as a kid's story when you were little. Um, you know, yeah, there's, there's one about the whale. Or, um, actually, not about a whale. It's not about a big fish. There's only three verses. doesn't even have a speaking part. Um, not a major character. But what is the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah is a miracle. The book of Jonah is a mirror, a mirror. It's a book written so that in Jonah we will see ourselves. The patterns and tendencies and the brokenness of our hearts. Jonah allows us to take a long and probably painful but ultimately freeing look at ourselves. Jonah is a mirror to ourselves and to our sin. Uh, it's also a mirror. Because Jonah doesn't leave us looking at ourselves, but through the window we're given a vision of God and his a vision of God and His grace and His patience and His kindness and His forgiveness. We're given this window to God's grace. And when we honestly look in the mirror, when we honestly look in the mirror, we see things that we want to change. But we know that the mirror has no power to change us. The transformation that we long to see in ourselves, not in our outward appearance, but our inner selves, that true transformation that we long for, only comes through what we see out that window. True transformation only comes through God's grace. Uh, there's this YouTube ad that popped up 
for me last year quite a bit. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a guy in his garage holding a phone, videotaping himself. Um, and behind him are two things. He's got a bookshelf full of books, which he claims to have read, and a Ferrari, which he claims he owns. Have anyone seen this out there? Maybe they're just targeting me specifically with this. Um, and the guy says this. He says, I've read all these books, and I've made enough money to buy this car. Sign up for my thing, and I'll give you the tools so this so you can have the same thing happen. And see, he's promising transformation. He's basically asking you, are you tired of being dumb and poor? I'll make you smart and rich. Just do what I can. He's promising success without sacrifice. And as appealing as that sounds, it, it's kind of hard to trust a guy who uses a cell phone camera in his garage that he can actually give you what he promises. Right? If you want success, you want everything that goes with it, profit, prosperity, comfort, fame, often we'll get inhuman, inhuman things to get. And more often than we'd like to admit, our time, our energy, our thought, and our thoughts are filled with self-improvement projects. For the rest of us. In his confessions, uh, St. Augustine prayed this famous prayer. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. Our hearts are restless. Your hearts are restless. My heart is restless. It's frantic. It's superstitious. Because it's so hard for us to find our rest in God. And that the way that we approach this transformation question, it's all about technique. Right, we know that there's something wrong, and we think that if we can manipulate it and orchestrate our circumstances, we can get a sense of mastery that will ensure success. We, we have this, um, this collective sense that uh, we have to win at all costs. So what does this have to do with Jonah? Well, Jonah had won. Jonah was a successful, respected prophet in Israel. He was at the top of his game. First half of the 8th century BC during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was an evil king, Jonah was a prophet. And he proclaimed God's favor to God's people, and he was a success. He was praised, he was given honor, and he loved him. And in the first book, first verse of the book, God speaks and he exposes Jonah's love of success. Because God tells Jonah to do something he doesn't want to do. To go and to preach to Nineveh which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria was Israel's enemy. Eighth century, which is arch, Israel's arched nemesis. The Assyrians were known for the, the horrible things they did to their enemies, including Israel. So God calls Jonah to go to preach to the Assyrian capital of Israel. And Jonah is going to go. Now why does Jonah want to go? Well, Jonah's in a no-win situation. If he preaches to Nineveh and God doesn't judge them, He's a failure because he put himself out there and God did not. Turns out that he's not a great prophet. And then he loses his credibility and his status. And if he preaches to Nineveh and the Ninevites repent of their sin and they worship Yahweh, he's a failure because everyone hates the Ninevites. And no one wants to see God be gracious to them. Everyone thought they don't need grace. This is a group of people who need judgment. So why is God messing with Jonah? Why is he exposing him? Why is he calling him? Why is God revealing that Jonah is not the good religious person that everyone thinks he is? Well, God calls Jonah, calls Jonah to Nineveh because he cares for the nations as much as he cares for his covenant people. God's plans have always included those who are outside the immediate circle of faithful believers. God's plan has not been destruction and judgment and retribution, but grace and reconciliation. God is saying, go to Nineveh 
so that everyone can know that I am gracious and compassionate, that I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Go to Nineveh so that they can know me and my hero. And what is Jonah's response? In effect, he's saying, why would you be so kind to people who hate to those who oppress your people, who flaunt their wickedness? And God's answer is that the unexplained love for Nineveh has the same source as God's unexplained love for Jonah and his unexplained love for you and for me. That God, in sending Jonah to Nineveh, is being consistent in his character. His desire is to restore the world to himself and love. And God is, is laying himself bare for us here, showing us who he is. He's showing Jonah and the world who he actually is. And we see in this that he desires transformation in Jonah, even when Jonah doesn't want it for himself. And what is Jonah's response to God's word to him, to this revelation of God's character, this revelation of God's compassion to the Ninevites? Jonah runs away. So an outline for this evening is simple. First, we're going to look at the defiance of Jonah, and second, we're going to look at the determined pursuit of God. So first is the defiance of Jonah. So verses 2 and 3, we see that Jonah runs away. God tells him to get up, to arise, and to go to Nineveh. And so Jonah gets up and he goes to not Nineveh as fast as possible. He runs. We're supposed to see this as ridiculous, what he's doing. He runs. The prophet of the Lord, who's supposed to go where God tells him, and to say what God tells him to say, the one who lives his life in the center of God's will and does not bless him, the one who is all backward, he does the exact opposite. Here is a prophet. He's had a supernatural encounter with God. He has heard the audible voice of God calling him, and he responds by hiding and running. This is ridiculous. Who would do that? Who in the world would run from God? Remember, Jonah is a mirror. So as we look at him, we're supposed, we're supposed to see ourselves. When we look at him. Look at Jonah until you see yourself. He's showing us that we all run. It's in our nature. And it's pretty safe to, to say that we can easily divide all people into two groups. Now, hear me out, I think I'm being overly binary, or unnecessarily binary, but hear me out, right? There's two groups. We've got Pepsi and Coke, right? Dr. Pepper doesn't count, it's Pepsi and Coke. Um, salty or sweet, people who eat all the pizza, people who eat the crust, um, toilet paper goes over the toilet roll, under the toilet roll, right? There's two types of people in the world people who love the Patriots and everyone else. Right? We do this religiously too. Um, we say there are people who are running from God and people who aren't running from God, right? People who are strong Christians, people who it's easy for them to, pull up, to obey, the ones who know more than others, the ones who are nicer than everyone else. But the Bible doesn't divide people like that. It says that we all run. The division that the Bible makes is those who know they run and those who don't know they run. At the most basic level, sin is running and hiding from Sin is not fundamentally about breaking the rules, but about breaking the relationship between you and God. We're all around it. So you might be thinking, well, how do, I, how do I run from God? Well, you're running from God when you look to yourself as your own authority, rather than submitting to God's authority as He's revealed in the And you're running from God when you're seeking to make yourself the most beautiful person in the room, or the strongest person in the room, or the smartest person in the room rather than looking to the beauty and the strength and wisdom of Christ. And you're running from God when you look at others and you judge them, sizing them up based on their appearance, their beauty, or clothes, or their togetherness, and then use them to tell yourself whether or not you're worth it. 
You're running from God when you look at yourself and your own accomplishments and your wealth and your status, rather than finding your identity and security in God's love for you in Christ. We're designed to find all things in God, to find our rest and our satisfaction in God. And when we look for those things anywhere else, we're running. See, it's not about being religious or being not religious. It's not about what's going on outwardly, but what's going on inside of you. And most of us are unaware or oblivious or just numb to the ways that we run from God. Now, it's important to know that you run from God, but it's equally important to know how you run. Because every one of us has strategies we use to run from God. And we use the same strategies that Jonah did. So how did Jonah run? He resisted God's commands. He resented God's presence. And he rode the way of the circumstances. So first, he resisted God's commands. In verse 3, God's commands are very clear. Arise, go, and call out. And Jonah's response is to resist. And Jonah didn't have an intellectual problem. See, he had a moral problem. Mary Clark and I say this with our kids. Um, you give a crystal clear command, and the response is to do the exact opposite. I know none of you all have problems with your children, it's probably just us. Um, we had this one time when our oldest was little, and we were calling him to do something, and his response was, But my body doesn't want to obey. My kids said, So honest. It's not an intellectual problem, it's a moral problem. The same is true for Jonah. He has a choice. God's will or his will. Jonah chooses his preferences, his comfort, his convenience. He is determined to have his own life. So he resists God's commands and he resents God's presence. Jonah resists God's commands and goes in the exact opposite direction of the right, Why doesn't he just stay home and draw the lines and give up the covers and hide? Like he's running from the presence of God. Now, he probably understood God's omnipresence. But what he's doing is that he's fleeing from God's fellow presence. And we all do this. We all have areas of our lives that we try to keep God out of. Right? You could do, one way you do this might be by um, your unwillingness to open the Bible and read it because you're trying to keep God out. Your, your unwillingness to sit down and pray because you're trying to keep God out. Or your unwillingness to talk to your Christian friends about that particular thing because you're trying to keep God out of that area of your life. This is what Jonah is doing. He's saying, I want nothing to do with you, God. Why? Why, why would Jonah do this? What is at the root of this? Well, at the root is that he hates the fact that God is extending his grace to the Ninevites. Jonah's life is about self-reliance and self-promotion. His religion is about God's grace to me and my people, but not to them. Right? It's not only selfish, it's racist. Here's what he's doing. He's saying... That he doesn't need God's grace because he's too good. And the Ninevites can't have God's grace because they're too bad. He's too good to need God's grace. They're too bad to have to receive God's grace. And God's call to preach to Nineveh is a direct hit at Jonah's identity. And it reveals his self-righteous superiority. And self-reliance always reveals itself in superiority. Right? When you put your, your identity in yourself, it reveals itself in superiority. You know what this feels like. Think about your internal monologue for a moment. Think about your internal monologue when your identity is in yourself. It's filled with judgment. I should call Austin this week to confess sin and to ask for prayer because of this. Because I'm so deeply convicted of this. I was so wrapped up in myself that I saw everyone as objects of judgment. 
not as people who bear the image of God um, and are to receive my love. But I saw them as others of objects of judgment and comparison. When we put our identity in ourselves, we rely on ourselves, we're sizing others up, and we judge them, right? This, this, this happens to all of us. Right? You can feel superiority if you're the richest person here or if you're the poorest person here, if your identity is in yourself. Right? We do this, we divide ourselves regionally, if you're from north, from south, if your identity is being religious or non-religious, being educated or uneducated, conservative or liberal, right? it happens on both sides. Whatever way your self-reliance manifests itself, it will always reveal itself as superiority. It might not be visible to everyone, but you feel it when God knows it. For Jonah, grace was his exclusive possession. He was thinking, God, you can't do this. It can't be this easy for them. They have to work for their salvation. His complaint wasn't that God wasn't gracious enough. His complaint that God was that God was too gracious. Jonah's resentment of God's presence reveals not how he felt about Nineveh, but how he felt about God. Jonah thought, God's favor is something to be earned, and there's no way that Jonah is allowed, that Nineveh is allowed to happen. And Jonah is wrong. Because you cannot outsend God's grace, you cannot earn his, you cannot earn his love. God alone can give his grace. And what you do or don't do can't get you closer to God and move you further away. Christianity is not about doing. It's not about achieving. It's not about merits. And Jonah wants it to be about earning, so he runs from God. He, he resists God's command. He resists God's presence. And then he relies on whatever means are available. Verse 3, you tell him he goes to Joppa, he gets a ship, he pays the fare, and he goes to Tarshish. Tarshish is, is modern-day Spain. It's the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. And Jonah's showing us that there is always opportunity to run from God. And there's always assistance. If you want to run from God, there are a thousand ways to do it every minute. There's always assistance on the downward path. This word down occurs six times, five times in the first six verses. God tells Jonah to arise and go up. We're told Jonah goes down, 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 down. <coughs> There's always assistance on the downward path. For your selfishness, there is always more opportunities to spend money on yourself. For your lust, there are always more internet sites to visit. For your vanity, there's always more clothes to buy, or treadmills, mirrors. For your racism, there's always people from another race doing or saying something that you don't like. For your resentment, there's always someone else who understands and appreciates you better. For your ambition, there's always another lie to tell, or promotion to seize, or scheme to enact, or person to choose. For your apathy, there's always something more exciting to do than to reach out and care for someone who's on the outside. This is Jonah's defiance. And look at God's response. He refuses to let Jonah go. So Jonah is afraid that Nineveh won't get the judgment it deserves, so he runs as fast as far away as he can. And the irony here is that Jonah needs the very grace that he is despising. And he's not the only one running. Right? Sin is our running from God, and grace is God's running after us to reclaim us, to prevent our self-destruction, to restore us to himself. And God comes after us in hot pursuit. In Jonah's case, he sent a storm to stop him and to knock him flat. Now, why didn't God just let him go? For the same reason that he wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. Love, his love. 
God's love is greater and fiercer than your running. His love will not let you go. You can resist his commands. You can resent his presence. You can ride away from whatever you can get a hold of in your downward flight from him. But his grace does not cease and he will pursue you. The good news of these verses is that God is not sending the storm. He is coming on the storm. There is love beneath his ways. And the way God pursues Jonah is the same way that he's pursued his people from the beginning. The first two chapters of the Bible were told that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, made all things. At the pinnacle of the creation, he made humans in his image. And the word of the Lord goes out, much like it to Jonah. And just like with Jonah, God gave our first parents a very clear command. And just like Jonah, they disobeyed. And just like with Jonah, our first parents fled God's presence. And they relied on whatever means available to run and hide. For Jonah was a ticket and a ship. For Adam and Eve, it was an apple and fig leaves. And just like Jonah, God did not let them go, but he came after them. In Genesis 3, we're told that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from God's presence among the trees of the garden. And this phrase, cool of the day, could also be translated spirit of the day. This word spirit is this Hebrew word ruach. It's spirit or breath or wind. And here in Jonah, we're told that God didn't let Jonah go, but he came after him in love, and he hurled a great ruach, a great wind upon the sea. His gracious pursuit of Jonah echoes his gracious pursuit of Adam and Eve. And here's what God is saying to you. He does not abandon you when you run from him. He comes after you because he loves you. George is our, our youngest, our one-year-old, um, and when he was two months old, he was a delightful baby, except for one thing. Uh, he only pooped every three days. And, and, and when he pooped, it was like shaking a champagne bottle for three days and then popping the cork. Uh, and so when he went, it was a new diaper, a full body wipe down, a bath, and new clothes. Now, why do we do this as parents? Why don't we say, well, George, we're only going to change your diaper. These blowouts, they're just not part of Right? We don't say that. Of course we don't say that. We're missing parents. And in the same way that we run from God and have our proverbial spiritual blowouts, like God doesn't look away from us. He doesn't hand us off to someone else. No, he moves towards us. He runs after us. He, he graciously and lovingly cleans us up. His love will not let us go. And what the author of Jonah is doing is that he is holding up a mirror and saying, Look, you are just like Jonah. And Jonah is just like his first parents, Adam and Eve. You are running and hiding and trying to flee God's presence. All of us. Y'all, this is all of us. And he's pointing out the window and saying, look, God does not change. The same God who pursued Adam and Eve in grace, the God who covered them, who promised them that one day he would defeat sin and death for us. That same God came on the wind and tempest to Jonah, unwilling to let him go because he loves him. And this is the same God who comes to us in Jesus. Jesus, who in his incarnation was unlike him. He was obedient to the will of his Father. Sent to us, taking our human life so that he could save us from our sin. He lived the life he should have lived to save us from the life he had. And Jesus, who in his crucifixion, took the storm of God's judgment that you and I deserve for our defiance. The judgment that we deserve for resisting God's commands, for resenting his presence, for riding the wave of our circumstances when we run from him. 
Jesus on the cross took the storm of God's judgment onto himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in his resurrection and ascension, he might give us the sweet presence of his spirit and restore us to himself and love. Uh, I'm concluding here. The, uh, the Day of Atonement, which is the annual, an annual festival for the Jews in the fall, on, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the simple Jewish congregation comes together and they read the entire book of Jonah aloud. And in one part of the liturgy, the congregation responds by confessing together with one voice, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. This is a powerful reminder for us to confess and to keep confessing. For us to tell on ourselves and to keep telling on ourselves that through Jonah we see our own defiance. We see our running away. And through Jonah we see the determined, gracious pursuit of God. And we learn that there is no refuge from God. 